You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. To First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Well, big economic news today. 233,000 jobs created. The unemployment rate dropped to 3.5%. So that's huge news for the economy. But today is a big day for the nation and Congress. It is the second anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And after 11 votes, the House of Representatives still doesn't have a speaker. It's the first time this has happened in 164 years. Joining me now is Mariana Sotomayor. She is a congressional reporter at the Washington Post who's been all over this story the last 36, 48, forever hours. Mariana, (laughs) welcome back to First Look. Thanks for having me. I have no idea how many hours it's been. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, last night after Kevin McCarthy failed for the 11th time to secure the speaker's gavel, he briefly addressed reporters still sounding, well, still sounding like he's going to get this done. Let's listen. No, no, I'm not putting any timeline on it. I just think we've got some progress going on. We've got members talking. Uh, I think we've got a little movement, so we'll see. Have you had to walk back the threats that you're going to strip committee assignments we're, we're, from we're these not, members? We're not strip. I didn't make those threats. Was that a mistake to make that threat? I didn't make that Mike threat. Rogers did. Yeah, well, you're saying I made the threat, so let's be very clear. I did not make the threat, and no members are not going to lose their committee assignments. Do you think How long do you think this is going to drag out for at this point? I'd love to know, but we're working through and we made good progress today, so we'll continue to talk. Did you- Mariana, there's so much in in that clip to talk about. But first, I want to start with, with him saying that uh, they are, quote, making good progress. But is his confidence misplaced? Will the 12th time be the charm? So he's not wrong when he says that there is no timeline, because we actually won't know if 12th time is the charm until everyone actually, I think, puts out a statement saying, we have a deal. That's not to say that there hasn't already been a deal. There has been progress made. And I got to say, for the first time, I felt that yesterday. And the reason why is because on Wednesday night, McCarthy did give significant concessions that a number of those holdouts were wanting to see, trying to bring down a motion to adjourn and or sorry, a motion to vacate vote for him to be ousted as speaker to one person, actually promising more committee assignments to a number of these Freedom Caucus members, things like that. And it actually has moved a couple of members, I am told, from people who are part of the negotiations. Now, This is part of two different phases. Phase one is expected to be what we're seeing now, where the details still have to be put into any kind of rules changes. And that's why there's no timeline. People don't know how long it's going to take to actually type this stuff up to really make sure that it is not just on paper, but basically a blood oath between these guys for them to go and finally vote. But we should expect if and when that vote happens, and we don't know if that happens today, It's really only going to move, possibly according to a number of Republicans who are in charge of whipping these members, to 10. So McCarthy will make gains, and that will show momentum. But there, you you have to only, he can only be speaker if he loses four votes. You have to get to 218. So 10 is not going to move that. And that's when we should expect a phase two to happen, which is when you will see members 
really aggressively putting pressure. We have seen also conservative media putting pressure on some of these holdouts, as well as donors. If that doesn't move them, then maybe that's the point in which McCarthy really has to actually recalculate whether he should continue to seek the speakership. But members are fe feeling positive. But unfortunately, I think for all of us, we don't know when this first movable vote may happen. Maybe we'll find out today. Okay, so listening to all of that, um, and I'm glad you brought up a lot of the concessions that Leader McCarthy has made. In that clip, we heard him say, no one's gonna lose their committee assignments. <laughs> Huge concession to say the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Matt Gateses and all these other folks who voted against him. The other thing you mentioned was the motion to vacate, something he said before Christmas, I'm, we're, we're never going to negotiate over that. And as you said, before it was, I'm never going to do it. Then it was, well, how about five members can bring a, a motion to vacate? And now it's become, well, what it was before, one person. How weakened would a Speaker McCarthy be if he gets, if he gets to 218 with this one member motion to vacate rule hanging out there? Doesn't he start his, his speakership basically as a hostage to the Freedom Caucus from minute one. You know, I, I, Democrats obviously talking about this and probably putting it in the best way possible, hearing from a leadership aide yesterday saying, okay, he'll get elected as speaker and then we're gonna have to have a speakership vote the next day. Because yeah, it completely significantly weakens the speakership. This is the reason why we saw John Boehner step back. It was also a threat put forward to Paul Ryan. And it according to these members, holds the speaker accountable, but it also very much holds the speaker hostage to a number of demands. And that has really significantly, angrily upset all of the moderates, which is a much bigger group than the 30 or so Freedom Caucus members that exist. And they even said in a show of support for McCarthy, that they would never support a rules package that brings the motion to vacate back to just one member. But again, in this meeting that happened Wednesday evening, those moderates were there too. And what, why they are also feeling positive is because those holdouts who are negotiating good favor told them, listen, we are not gonna use this privilege in an irresponsible manner because why would we want to have a speaker fight and do this all over if, Jim Jordan is investigating and trying to get, you know, a number of the Biden administration officials to come in. And we're also not going to use it during a presidential year where all of the attention will be on Republicans in disarray, which, as we saw, really did impact the midterm election. So that seems to have appeased a number of those moderates. Seems like they might, will be willing to be fine with that motion to vacate. But they also have their own threat, which is, hey, we can actually gang up with Democrats to use something that is called a discharge petition to basically supersede leadership, supersede the majority, get bipartisan bills on the floor, and we will give them those votes. So it really is behind the scenes negotiating. I hear you. I'm going to trust you, which we weren't there a couple of days ago. And if you misuse your power and break that trust, we can have Democrats helping run the House. <laughs> oh my God. Um, this drama is gonna go on for a long time so we can save the, the Democrats piece of this discussion for another time in the less than two minutes that we have. Mariana, I wanna ask you about, what are we to make of the split along the far right? 
you've got Congressman Matt Gates and Congresswoman uh, Lauren Boebert, who at one point voted for Trump in the speaker's race. You have Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene voting for McCarthy and others voting for Jim Jordan, then Donalds, then Kern. Is that schism on the far right? What do we make of that? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be fascinating to watch. Even when we get a speaker, I mean, this is going to affect any kind of legislation. And Republicans have really realized that, that anything that they may try to negotiate could turn into this kind of mess where you're seeing a lot of factions happening within the far right, not just to mention the entire Republican conference itself. And, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene cozying up to McCarthy simply because she is going to get her committees back. We have heard from Gates and Boebert, and they are likely part of the never crew. So for Republicans, they're not ones to win over. They know that they have they can only lose four. They're the two of the potential four they can lose. But then you have some of these other guys who have budgetary requests, who just want to see the motion to vacate, who are coming forward to negotiate in good faith. And we have heard and reported that Congressman Chip Roy, who has been at the forefront of all of this, is a likely flip. And also Scott Perry, who came out on Tuesday and said, I'm definitely not voting for McCarthy. He might be one of those people who does, whether he's one of those 10 flips that we're expecting whenever this vote happens, maybe. But it is possible, it seems like, based on the number of Republicans who have said, no, I'm not doing it, who may actually give votes to McCarthy if and when we get to that point. Okay, so last time we saw there were 21 votes not for McCarthy. Um, You just said that there maybe could be 10 flips. Okay, so that leaves, carry the one, that leaves you uh, 11. um, 11 no votes or not for Kevin. But then that still means, (laughs) as you pointed out, um, Leader McCarthy cannot lose more than four votes in order to get to 218 minus 4 that's 7 so <laughs> that is that is the magic number and we're going to look forward today mariana when um, the 12th vote happens and however many votes keep happening today uh, as we go along mariana sotomayor congressional reporter at the washington post as always thank you for coming to first look a belated happy new year and have a good weekend thank you you too <laughs> We're going to keep this conversation and math lesson going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists E.J. Dion and Jennifer Rubin. E.J., Jennifer, uh, belated Happy New Year to you, and welcome back to First Look. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It was great to see you doing that math there. That was fantastic. <laughs> I know. Carry the one minus 11. So let's keep talking about this. Both of you, and I'm going to start with you, EJ. How damaging is this extended fight to the Republican Party and Kevin McCarthy's ability to be speaker and to govern if indeed he does get the gavel? Well, you asked Mariana before, does this mean he's hostage to the Freedom Caucus for the uh, rest of the Congress? And the answer is yes. He has clearly, he wants the speakership so badly that he's willing to give away all of the power of the speakership. So he's going to have a hellish time governing. And I guess they are counting on the idea that um, in the end, the Freedom Caucus won't cause a crisis because that would 
open the way for Democrats to form coalitions with Republicans. But boy, this is risky. And I'll tell you what I am, like a lot of people, uh, I'm really worried about, which is the debt ceiling. I was mm-hmm. talking yesterday to Congressman Brendan Boyle, who's now the ranking Democrat on the Budget Committee, and he said he came in to this Congress already worried that we could have a crisis around the debt ceiling, which could really implode the economy. He said now he is 10 times more worried because when John Boehner was speaker, and I think it was Brian Mast, a Republican who nominated McCarthy and said he's no John Boehner, that petrifies me because when he had to raise the debt ceiling, John Boehner was willing to go to Nancy Pelosi to use Democratic votes. With that ability now, the ability of the Freedom Caucus and their friends now have to throw uh, Kevin McCarthy out, he probably won't be willing to do that. Uh, and if that's the case, we could be in very, very big trouble as a country. You know, that that is my number one fear because I remember, I'm old enough to remember the debt ceiling fight in 2011. And that was terrifying then because then the Republicans seemed quote unquote crazy playing with the full faith and credit of the United States. 10 years later, the Republican party is infinitely more radical than it was then. But Jennifer, enough of me opining. Love your thoughts on what's happening with McCarthy, the Republican Party, and this fight. Well, a few things. First of all, aren't we glad that they passed Electoral Count Act reform last uh, time? Because we are seeing now just how unhinged, how unpatriotic, how undisciplined the Republicans are. So whatever belt and suspenders we put on the system last time, I think uh, will be um, much appreciated going forward. The second point is that we should keep in mind that there are simply divisions of crazies. There's not a moderate group other than perhaps, you know, a few stray people left still hanging on to uh, poor Kevin McCarthy. Um, all of the people, all of those 21 people are all radical Republicans. They're all people who are election deniers. We're talking about kind of gradations of people who are either personally affronted by um, Kevin McCarthy or who want other things. But there are no good guys among the 21. And by that, I mean, there are no people there who are looking to govern, who are looking to the best interests of the country. And the last thing that I would say is that a lot of the blame here goes to that group of forever silent um, Republicans who simply go along with the crowd. They are continuing to vote for McCarthy, knowing he doesn't have the votes. They are not exercising their leverage. They're taking a promise from the 21 that they won't use the one person motion to vacate. Really? Who speaks for Lauren Boebert? Um, You know, come on, guys, get real. Um, So they are both naive and hopelessly passive and cowardly. And until they, I think, break with McCarthy and say, listen, we're not going to vote for you next time around. And after that, we are going to the Democrats. I don't think this is going to get unstuck. And this has been the perennial problem of the Republicans. They are led around by the nose by a segment that is really terribly unhinged, but it only is enabled by the passivity and the cowardice of a larger group of Republicans. And those people really have to decide whether they want to be part of this clown show, putting the country's national security and economic security at risk. 
You know, that that is a great point, enabled by the passivity of uh, the bulk of the Republican caucus. EJ, I want to have you pick up on something that, that Jen was just bringing up, and that is the likelihood that this could go far, so far down the road that some of those folks on the Republican side, in the majority, they are the incoming majority, turning to Democrats to help them get out of this mess. Is that even remotely possible? Where we sit right now, and even maybe if we're at the 20th vote for speaker. Well, I think you put it right uh, that they they would turn to Democrats, because if Democrats themselves turn to the Republicans, anything they propose would be instantly discredited on the Republican side. So the initiative for any alliance has to come uh, from the Republican side. By the way, that term clown show I've been thinking about a lot, it's really disrespectful to clowns because clowns <laughs> are intentionally funny. Uh, and this is just a show that has that has that effect. And it's also dangerous. Um, I think that on some votes going forward, the only way we are going to govern is with Republicans turning to Democrats, in particular, the debt ceiling. There's no way that's going to pass unless Kevin McCarthy can go to Democrats and say, please give me some votes. There's no way we're going to be able to pass budgets. The House will be able to pass budgets without going to Democrats and say, give me some votes. So I think there's a certain inevitability about that. And I think that is the problem with a weak McCarthy speakership or a weak speakership generally, because the effort to get those votes could lead to that motion to vacate, to throw the uh, speaker out of office. And that's why this is going to be a very unstable couple of years. EJ, let me stick with you because you wrote a column. This gets to um, a bigger issue that you wrote about in a column this week saying Washington is going to be a much more partisan place in 2023. Real quickly, so we can turn to immigration. Uh, why? Well, because this, I, I think we've, we're seeing it the last three days because this House, uh, you know, under in the last round, we had unified Democratic government. Um, and so Republicans could throw stones, they could criticize. But Democrats actually had the power to pass stuff. Now they have an extra seat in the Senate, uh, which might help them pass things in the Senate a little bit. Um, but then everything goes to the House to die. Um, it will be, it's very hard to see how something passes the House. I think that one of the things the Democrats are going to do is now that there is the love fest between uh, Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell uh, in the visit to the bridge this week in uh, between Kentucky uh, and Ohio was very well-timed. Um, it suggests that maybe the Democrats in the Senate and the Republicans will pass stuff. That will bring some pressure on the Republicans in the House. But uh, this House is just going to make this a real, very serious partisan showdown. So, Jennifer, the president yesterday announced uh, a border policy aimed at reducing uh, illegal crossings. Um, what are its chances of actually working, doing anything to solve the problem there on the southern border? The president himself was very modest, and he said this may help somewhat. 
But unless there is a comprehensive bill from Congress, which, as EJ said, is now going to be impossible, um, this problem is going to continue. And the sort of things that Biden is proposing, surging resources to the border, um, fiddling with the so-called parole system so it's extended to other countries, allowing people to apply for admission remotely um, from their phones rather than showing up at the border, these are really things at the very margins of what is going on. And um, as we know, this is an endemic, complicated problem that did not arise in this presidency, did not even arise in the last presidency, um, and is rooted in a dysfunctional, violent, um, really poverty-stricken region um, in which people are desperate to get out. So some of the things he is proposing are, frankly, good policy, including raising the number of uh, possible uh, asylum seekers that would be admitted to the United States. But it's really going to be, I think, um, and I think the president realizes this, um, a minimal step. What he is doing is saying, listen, I'm doing my part. If you're not happy with the border, the problem is those dysfunctional Republicans in the House who won't do anything about an issue they claim to care very much about. And I think we're going to hear much more of that at the State of the Union and in the ensuing months. EJ, I mean, it's one thing to, you know, have Republicans throwing stones at this policy, but almost immediately what the president announced, but almost immediately the criticism came from a fellow Democrat. Um, Senator Menendez of New Jersey, Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman, if, mem if memory serves. Um, we'd love to get your viewpoint on what the president uh, ha has announced and the trip that he's going to take to the southern border over the weekend. Well, I, I broadly agree with Jen's perspective on this. I think that what he announced are sensible steps that obviously don't solve the whole problem, and he is not pretending uh, to solve uh, the whole problem. What we need is comprehensive immigration reform. And in principle, there is a deal to be made. I did an interview at the end of last year with Senator Angus King, the independent from Maine who caucuses with Democrats, but loves working with Republicans when he can. Um, and the notion of strengthening the border and then having permanent legal status, a, a better system for integrating the people already here and figuring out what kind of immigration we want going forward, it makes total sense. Unfortunately, history tells us that this issue is toxic. The Democrats and, the, and a group of Republicans years ago in the Senate passed an immigration reform bill. The votes were there for it at the time in the House. John Boehner, the Republican speaker, never put it on the floor. Why did he not put it on the floor? Because he knew there'd be a rebellion from the right wing of his caucus. Uh, welcome back in 2023 to the very same dynamic, only it's even worse now because I'm not even sure the votes are there in the House to pass any kind of comprehensive solution. Speaking of rebellion, uh, two years ago today, um, a remarkable day in, in American history, January 6, 2021, a mob instigated by the then President Donald Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol in an effort to stop the certification of a free and fair election. Um, both of you, I'd love to get your thoughts on this day and, and whether the insurrection of that day is continuing in this protracted fight uh, within the Republican Party over the speaker's gavel. 
It very much is, Jonathan. And I think the very same people who signed um, a brief trying to disenfranchise millions of Americans, the very same people who raised bogus objections to the electoral votes, the very same people who were spreading the big lie are now the people who are making it impossible to organize the House. And having enabled this group of people, um, the people who now express shock and disappointment that they are um, making it difficult for Kevin McCarthy um, really get the hypocrisy award. This has been a ongoing feature of the Republican Party now for several years. Um, and Although there have been extremists in American history, we have never had an extremist inside the White House and inside the Oval Office. And the failure of the party to deal with him and deal with that movement remains to this day. Um, we had a midterm election in which a number of election deniers um, were reelected to the House. Many of them came close to getting reelected to positions that could have been in control of uh, state elections, federal elections going forward. Um, and until I think the Republican Party and those voters who keep returning these people to power address this, we are going to be uh, in the grips of a very dangerous movement that makes violence a part of American politics and that makes governance really impossible. Um, so we'll see if a up-close look at what these people really do when they get power is enough to dissuade the voters next time. But really, this comes back ultimately to the voters. Is this the kind of country you want to live in? And EJ, um, love your thoughts as well, but also wrapping into that at the White House today, uh, President Biden is awarding the Presidential Citizens Medal to 12, quote, heroes who demonstrated courage and selflessness during a moment of peril for our nation. In your, in your reminiscence of what happened two years ago, talk about the significance of this honor and why it's important that these people be recognized nationally. Well, it's important because they saved our democracy. They literally helped save our democracy because if the uh, rioters and the insurrectionists had not been stopped, if they had stopped the count of the electoral votes that day, uh, it could have created a pretext for uh, Donald Trump to hang on to power, to use other means uh, to hang on to power. So they really saved our democracy. And in the case of all the police officers, both Capitol Police and others who came to help and National Guard people, um, these folks risked and in, in some cases gave their lives. Um, he's also honoring, as I understand the list, some of the folks who guaranteed a fair election. Um, and even though I don't think he intended it this way because he didn't expect this complete breakdown in the House, it's another case of counter-programming in the White House bipartisanship with McConnell earlier in the week and now reminding people that we had to stand together and at least some Republicans stood up, including for maybe a week, Kevin McCarthy, uh, against the attack uh, on the Capitol. I do want to say there's good news, which is when you looked at the election, uh, the people who tended to lose in swing states, not in hardcore Republican states, but in swing states, were the election deniers, were the radicals, all of the secretary of state candidates who bought into Trump's lie in the swing states lost. So the country, I think, sent a message that it doesn't mean they support Democrats on everything or even that they're liberal, but they don't like what happened on January 6th. They didn't like it then and they don't like it now.
And you know what we're it, what we're in store for today is an incredible split screen moment um, here in Washington at opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. On one end at the U.S. Capitol where the insurrection happened, you have in the House of Representatives um, vote after vote after vote trying to get a, a Speaker of the House elected. And reminding, a reminder to everyone that the business of the House can't get started until there's a speaker. There, there, we have no 118th Congress officially until there's a speaker and those incoming members can be sworn in um, as official members of Congress and then the business of the country can get rolling. And then at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue at the White House with the President of the United States honoring 12 Americans who really put themselves on the line in order to save our democracy, to uphold our democracy. And at one end, there's chaos. At the other end, there's order and a show of stability. And I think, EJ, you are absolutely right that whether the White House set it up this way or not, it fits perfectly into what President Biden was arguing before the midterm elections about you know, democracy is on the ballot. And now here we are again with this split screen, with the president being able to show like what is at stake when there's chaos at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. Enough of my sermon, E.J. Dion, Jennifer Rubin, as always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. And you too, thanks. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.